when you have sinners in your midst in the church, you need to deal with their sin. But for those outside the church, you should not judge them. I was talking with my brother this past week and told him I was preaching this Sunday and he asked me what the topic was and I said, church discipline. He's not a Christian. He kind of uh, made a funny face as well. I assume you mean that we need to live disciplined lives. I said, no. uh, The teaching of the passage is that we need to discipline members of the church if they uh, fall into sin. He kind of grimaced and screwed up his face and uh, I knew that he was thinking thoughts of the Inquisition and things like that. But as I explained to him what Paul says in this passage, he, he finally said, well, that does make sense. I think that you'll see the same thing as we go through this passage. First of all, let's look at verses 1 to 5 in which Paul says that we are to uh, discipline the sinner for his own good. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, in my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying that this church at Corinth had their whole priorities and values mixed up. They were giving a lot of attention to external things. And yet there was a man in their midst who was living in sin and they were tolerating that and doing nothing about it. He said it's actually reported that there's immorality among you of such a kind that even pagans would tolerate in their midst. And yet you, the church, are doing nothing about it. There's a man who is living with his father's wife or sleeping with her. Possibly she's not his mother, possibly just a stepmother. But in any event, a kind of relationship that even the pagan world would not tolerate. And the attitude of the Corinthians is spoken of in verse 2. You have become arrogant. They were puffed up. They had an inflated idea of themselves. They thought, we are a beautiful, fantastic church. We have eloquent preachers. We have an intellectually profound congregation. We have a growing membership and programs that are successful. We have spiritual gifts in abundance in our church. Or we have miracles and healings and speaking in tongues and prophecies and all sorts of things. And Paul's response is, well, who cares about these secondary matters when there's sin that's unjudged in your midst? He says, instead of being arrogant, you should have mourned instead. You should have grieved over the sin that was taking place within your body. We need to learn a lesson here for ourselves. We need to not be satisfied with certain external successes. 
we may have a growing membership and a certain degree of popularity among certain groups of people in the city and, and different forms of external success like that. But we as individuals and we collectively as a church need to learn to evaluate ourselves by God's values and His standards. If there's sin that's unjudged in our midst, we need to grieve and mourn. Now Paul is not saying, when he says that we need to mourn, he's not saying that he wants us to become morbid and introspective and develop a guilt complex and become incapacitated because of our failures. But rather he says that he wants us to be bothered by sin so that we can do something about it. That's what he says in verse 2. You should have mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. We as individuals and we collectively as a church need to take sin seriously. We need to not tolerate it. We need to not just blink the eye and say, well, you know, everybody does it. It's really not so bad. Everybody else has their fault. Why should I be so upset and concerned with mine. After all, doesn't God love us just as we are and forgive us? Why, He's even forgiven us for the sins I'm going to do tomorrow. And these things are true. But we shouldn't take a flippant attitude towards our sin, our failures. We need to take them seriously. And again, not so that we become immobilized because of a guilt complex, but because but take them seriously so that we can do something about them. This is this church was supposed to do. And that which they were supposed to do was to remove this man from their midst. They were to judge this sin and the one who had committed the sin. Now verses 3 to 5 are a little bit difficult to translate. And notice, I think most of you have New American Standard, notice in verse 5 the first three words are italicized. I heard of one preacher who decided that he would put his values where God placed them and preach in all the italicized words in the Bible. He didn't realize that the italicized words indicate words that the translator supplied because they're not in the original. So whenever we see italicized words, we always need to ask, is this, do they really fit? Is there another way we could translate this? I think in this instance, we can retranslate it and probably should. The New International Version takes it away that I think it should be translated. And it's like this. Verse 3, Paul says, For I and my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In other words, his sin is so obvious, the facts of the case are, are so clear, I, though I am physically removed, have already passed judgment on this man. I've already decided what should be done. And then in verses 4 and 5, he says, You too make judgment. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, you as a church collectively, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver, and this should be translated, I think, as an imperative, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, verse 3, Paul says, I have judged. Verses 4 and 5, he says, now you judge this man. But wait a minute, somebody says. Doesn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? 
My wife had a roommate in college, and every time she made any kind of judgment about anything, well, this church, you know, is not so good because they don't teach the scriptures there. Or they don't believe that God is real and things like that. Well, judge not, lest you be judged, she'd always say. But if we look at that passage in Jesus' teaching there in Matthew 7, we see that that uh, this roommate was really missing the intent of what Jesus was saying. Because he goes on in that same section, he says, first take the speck out of your own eye, so that you may be able to see clearly to take the speck, take the uh, first take the log out of your own eye, so that you may be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What he wasn't saying was don't make any judgments at all. He's saying instead, don't have that judgmental, condemning spirit of some people who are always pointing the finger at others and never examining themselves. And often are worse sinners than those that they're pointing the finger at. He says, first look at yourself. Judge your own sin. But do so so that you may be able to see clearly to judge your brother's sin. So he's not saying don't judge at all. It's important to note here also that Paul is not saying everything in this passage that the Bible teaches about, about church discipline. Paul says in, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 18 that first we are to go to the person individually. You're not to see somebody do something wrong and then report it to one of the pastors or to the council of elders or to the dean of students or gossip among your friends. You're to go to that person who has done the wrong and talk to him or her about it. And if that person refuses to repent, then take two or three witnesses so he knows that this is not just a personal vendetta on your part. It's not just your opinion. But rather they see the facts too and the, and the scriptures clearly teach that he should turn from this kind of sin. And only then, only as a last resort, do you bring the matter out before the whole church and exercise church discipline on this person. Also Paul says in Galatians 6 that we are to, in our attitude, be seeking to restore the person and restore Seek the restoration in a spirit of gentleness, looking to ourselves, lest too, we too be tempted. In other words, we're to have a gentle, loving attitude, not harsh. Say, you sin, stop it right now. Whether we come across gently with the recognition that we too are sinners. So it's not a self-righteous attitude. Well, I never would do something like that. Rather, the attitude that we come across with is Hey, I'm your brother. I love you. I could do the same thing. I'm a sinner just as bad as, as uh, the worst. And I know that given the right circumstances, I could do the same thing that, that I see you doing. But here's what I see that you're doing. And, and uh, scriptures say you need to turn from it. It's going to destroy you. And that's what we seek as brothers. So we are to judge the person. And then verse 5, Paul says, what the judgment is to be. He says, deliver one such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now that might sound at first like some kind of voodoo to uh, get out a little doll and make it look like the person and stick pins in or something and, and let Satan uh, destroy his flesh. But what Paul is saying is the same thing that he had said in verse 2. Um, 
that in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. In other words, Satan is the god of this world. The world out there is his realm. And as you deliver him over to Satan, you're removing him from the fellowship of the church. You're removing him from the restraints that we enjoy and benefit from as believers congregating together. From the instruction of the scripture, from the fellowship of one another, from the encouragement, the example, the, the rebuke, the admonition, the exhortation that we can give one another. The person is put out there on his own into the world in the realm of Satan so that he might experience the destruction of his flesh. Paul's thought here is that as he's out there with the restraints removed, he will indulge himself in his sin more and as a result will find out what it's really like. He will experience that it is bad and it will destroy him maybe even make him physically ill as he gives himself to a life of indulgence. Well, that sounds like a cruel thing to do, to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You might be thinking, wouldn't it be better if we just kept him in the church so that by our fellowship he might see the love of Christ in us and he might experience the restraints and not go off into sin? But Paul says in verse 5 what the end goal is that he has in mind, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's assuming here that we understand that if a person is really a Christian, if he's really been born again, he cannot continue in a life of sinful rebellion. He may have had a conversion experience, prayed a prayer to ask Christ into his life, and, and been very active and involved. But if he lives a life of sinful rebellion, it shows he doesn't really know Christ. And our excluding him from the fellowship of the church is really the most loving thing we can do. Because it's making him see that this is serious. And if he doesn't deal with the sin, it shows that he's not really a Christian. And so we remove him from the fellowship of the church. And if he's really a believer he will see that, yes, this is indeed a very serious matter, and he will finally turn and repent. Even if he's not a believer, it's still the most loving thing to do because he's shaken from his self-complacency, from his self-deceit, whereby he thinks that just because he comes to church and maybe has had some religious experiences, that he's really a true believer. And now he sees, no, he's not. And so he has the opportunity to correct his error and to come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. It may seem cruel to stab somebody in the stomach with a knife and cut open his guts. But if you're a doctor, that might be the most loving thing to do at times. It may seem cruel for us as a church to kick somebody out to exclude them from fellowship. But at times, that's the most loving thing to do because that makes him face up to the seriousness of his sin. And we do it not because we're self-righteous, because we think, well, I've never sinned and I never do that thing, but because we love him. We want to see his spirit saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, the day when Christ returns. We want him to... to 
face up to reality and repent of his sin. To do otherwise is really to condone it and to imply to him, well, it's really okay. You know, we've tried, we've come individually in a small group and you haven't given it up, but well, that's okay. Uh, continuing the sin, we kind of need your pledges to keep coming into the church offering and you know, we can't replace you as a Sunday school teacher very easily, so, you know, stay with there, don't leave us, whatever you do. And we communicate to the person that, that the sin is really not that important. But if we follow the biblical teaching and exclude the person, then we do communicate that sin is very serious. And because of its seriousness, we have to take this kind of drastic measure. Then in verses 6 to 8, Paul implies a couple of other reasons why we are to exercise church discipline. The first one, verses 1 to 5, for the sake of the sinner himself, that he might face up to it and repent of it. Then verses 6 to to 8, we read this. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul says, first of all, in these verses, that we are to exercise discipline for the sake of the whole church. He says, don't you know that just a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If you've ever done any baking, you know what he means. It's a little bit of yeast, a little leaven in the, in the lump of, of dough makes the whole thing rise. It's small, it's invisible once you mix it all up, but it affects everything. That's the same way with sin. It may be small, it may be invisible, and not really obvious or seen, but it starts affecting the whole body. Now, in some cases, the effect may be direct. You might look and say, well, see, there's John Smith, and he's a cruel and harsh businessman and does some cheating, and he's getting rich. And yet, nobody in the church seems to be bothered by it. He's still a Sunday school teacher. Well, maybe I should do the same thing, become ruthless in my business practices, unthinking to the people around me, and maybe cheat a little bit so I can get rich too. Or the sin may spread in an indirect way. It may just be that you see this person in sin. Nobody seems to take it seriously. You say, well, you know, he's got his thing, I've got mine. And so you let go in your life, unjudged, certain attitudes. Maybe it's an unforgiving spirit. Somebody you have a grudge against. You know you should forgive, but they really did you wrong. Or maybe it's just an irritable spirit. You think, well, I didn't get enough sleep last night. I can't help it. It's too hard to be loving in a day like this. And you just let it go. Or maybe you have inside a a spirit of covetousness, greed. What you really want is to get your neighbor's house, which is nicer, and his nicer car and his wife who's nicer, and all this other stuff, and the kids that are nicer. And and you have a covetousness within you. 
and you let that go unjudged. And pretty soon, the, just the whole attitude of taking sin in a lackadaisical way spreads. Paul says, clean out the old leaven. In other words, remove this man from your midst and clean out the old leaven within your lives of your own wrong response to him, letting him go and continue in his sin. Clean it out that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now that sounds like a contradiction. He says, clean out the old lump that you may be a new lump, in other words, without leaven, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. He says, clean out the leaven so you can be unleavened, but you are unleavened. And what he's differentiating here, uh, he's differentiating between, on the one hand, our practice, and the other hand, our position. In practice, we are all sinners, every one of us. Not a day goes by in which we don't sin. We get caught up in selfishness, greed, intolerance, irritability, whatever it is. In practice, we're not righteous. We're full of leaven of wickedness and malice. In our position before Christ, our position before God, we are pure, we're holy, we're righteous. He says, he explains at the end of the verse, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. We're righteous before God because Jesus Christ has cleansed us. And so when God sees us, we don't come before his presence and he sees, ugh, sin-stained person. Rather, he sees one who is holy, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of our goodness, but because of His grace. And so what Paul is saying then is be what you are. You are, in God's eyes, holy. Therefore, be that in practice. Don't tolerate sin, either in your own lives individually or in your life collectively as a church. Rather, judge it, deal with it, eradicate it from your midst. Verse 80 says, Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's not saying that we should celebrate the Passover feast in a literal way. He's speaking symbolically in verses 7 and 8. We celebrate the feast when we are living a life of, of celebrating, rejoicing in the fact that Jesus Christ is our Passover. He is our sacrifice. We're counting on His death for us and His death in us to make life what it should be. To give us the resources to live. To give us the right standing before God and His presence. And he says as you live this life, as you live your Christian life, you celebrate the feast, don't do it with old leaven, with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but rather with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity is, is, not, is not being one thing in the inside and another thing in the outside. Being open, not putting on a facade, a front. Dealing with our sin, admitting it's there. Celebrating it with truth, is taking the truth of God's Word seriously. What He says is sin. We say it's sin. When He says to deal with it, we say, okay, I'll deal with it. And Paul's implying in this verse that we also need to celebrate, we also need to exercise church discipline for the sake of Jesus Christ and his honor. 
because to do to do otherwise is to is to profane his name to dishonor him by celebrating the feast with leavened bread to live life with sin that goes unjudged in us is a is a hypocrisy it's a sham that's not a sham for us to live with sin to live and to sin because we all do that it's not a hypocrisy to say I'm going to be loving today and then you go out and you blow it and you yell it at somebody or get irritated and yell in your mind that's not hypocrisy that's just failure it's hypocrisy when you put on a mask and you say I'm going to be loving today inside you're full of hatred and bitterness towards somebody and outward you're it's a big smile and you say at the end of the day I was loving today that's hypocrisy when the sin is there and it's not admitted and judged and this is what Paul is saying that we need to deal with our sin be honest with it and celebrate the, the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth the so verses 1 to 8 Paul is saying how we should treat sinners within the church we should discipline the offender he says for three reasons for his own good so that the sin won't spread and affect other brothers and sisters within the body of Christ and third for Christ's own honor and then in verses 9 to 13 he says what we are to do with sinners outside the church I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler not even to eat with such a one for what have I to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside God judges remove the wicked man from among yourselves now Paul had written to them earlier said don't associate with immoral people and they had misunderstood what he was saying we're not sure exactly what they their misunderstanding was it may have been they thought well if we're not to associate with immoral people then no more contact with those sinful non-christians out there we'll just kind of have a holy huddle group in our church and we'll sit around and and support one another and exclude any contact from those contaminating pagans or it could have been that they responded and said well gee if we don't have any contact with immoral people we'd have to go out of the world and Paul that's ridiculous it's totally impractical to say don't associate with immoral people so we're just not going to do anything but Paul's response is I didn't mean the immoral people of this world you're not to dissociate yourselves from them you as Christians are not to withdraw and say oh horror have contact with the sinner he says it's a so-called brother that you're to dissociate yourself from you're not to associate with somebody who says he's a Christian and yet continues in a life of sin not somebody even who used to be a Christian or claimed at one time he's a Christian but now has given up the faith but somebody who claims he's a Christian you go to him he refuses to repent 
A group go to him, he refuses to repent the whole the whole church. He's, the matter is brought before, before the whole church. He still refuses to repent. He says, that person do not associate with, do not even eat with such a one. Because that person must see that this thing is very serious. And notice that he lists several different kinds of sins. Usually, when churches practice this, it's limited to people who've committed adultery or become drunkards. But he includes, along with those, other sins. He says, an immoral person, in other words, sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Even somebody who is covetous. His sin is that he wants to get rich come hell or high water. He wants to have this world's goods. He's got his heart set on it. Paul says that's a sin. To covet what other people have. To overvalue the things of this world. And even that type of sin must be judged. He's not giving an exhaustive list. Only if you do one of these things can you be disciplined. Rather, he's merely being suggestive. Because really, all sin is serious. It all has bad effects upon us. It weakens our relationship with God and produces in us all the ill effects of sin, the death and the frustration, and all the things that we don't want. And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul says what we are to do with those outside. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do not you judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. We as Christians kind of reverse this sometimes, I think. For ourselves and our friends within the church, we become very tolerant. Well, everybody fails. But for those outside the church, we become very judgmental. Think about your response the last time you were at work and somebody told a dirty joke. Did you respond, Oh, whore, don't say that around me. I have pure ears. Or if somebody uses the Lord's name, do you grab the person by the collar and say, Look, buddy, that's my Lord you're talking about. Or say something cute like, Oh, do you know Jesus Christ? Things which in themselves may be harmless, but all they do is is convey a condemnation to the person, a judgment of them. Now, it's appropriate sometimes to speak up against sin, but we as Christians are not to judge the sinners. We're not to condemn them. A perfect example for us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's always remarkable to me when I read the Gospels to see that though he turned off the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the obvious sinners flocked to him. They liked him. And for us, oftentimes it's a reverse. Religious people like us, but the people of the world feel put off and condemned, feel that we're self-righteous and judging. It's remarkable to me that Jesus went right into their midst. He went to their parties. He socialized with them. He loved them. Rather than condemning, he offered them the way of eternal life. And Paul says this is what we're to do. We're not to judge those who are outside. We're not to remove ourselves and dissociate ourselves from their presence and their company. Rather, he says elsewhere later on in this epistle, 
I become all things to all men that by any means I might, I might win some. Because I go out of my way to befriend the non-Christian, to be like them as much as I can without compromising God's standard of righteousness, that I might win them. Well, this chapter, I think, is very searching for us all. Most of us don't like to think about having to judge or discipline a fellow member of the body of Christ. Fortunately, in the vast majority of cases, the matter never comes up before the whole church. The vast majority of the cases, once a person is confronted, with, confronted individually with a sin or maybe in a small group, at that point, he or she turns from the sin and repents. It's a hard thing for us to think about being involved in that, helping one another out and confronting one another. I think it's probably hard for most of us because we're afraid that we'd be hypocritical because there's sins in our own lives that we're covering up, that we're hiding. We don't want them to turn the tables and say, well, how about you? We have a guilty conscience. So let's pray for a minute and uh, think about our own lives. Let's pray. Bow your heads together with me and think about your own life. Review it before the Lord and see if there's any sin that you are covering up. Any half-hearted commitment to Him? Any clinging on to a certain goal or ideal or attitude or action that you want above His will for you? Confess your sin. And now think about your brothers and sisters. Do you have a brother or sister in the body of Christ that you know is living in some kind of sin that you need to go to to confront about that? Not because you're self-righteous or self-appointed judge, but because you love the person. If God points somebody out to you, then Pray about that and about how you might best serve that person. Father, we confess that we are all sinners. That we fall far short of what you desire for us to be and to do. Lord, help us to learn to be intolerant of our own sin. Not let it continue unjudged. Help us to deal with it and put it away. And help us, Father, to have the courage and the love necessary to minister to one another in this ministry of, of confrontation, lovingly pointing out what may be a blind spot for somebody else. Lord, it's hard to do. We feel self-conscious. We feel inadequate. And yet we know the Scriptures clearly teach that we need to take sin seriously. And we know that sin affects the person involved in it. And therefore we know it's unloving for us to see somebody continue in sin and not do anything about it ourselves. Help us to be wise, Lord. Help us to know how to gently and lovingly help one another out as we together as brothers and sisters pursue you 
and grow in grace. We thank you for your presence with us and your power in us. In Christ's name, amen.